welcome to another episode of Arista's Movie Adventure. I am Arista, and today I'm joined by third-time returning guest, Drew. Drew, how are you? Absolute pleasure to be here with both, not just you, one of my closest friends, but I'm, I'm really glad to be on the pod with our next guest. Oh yeah, same, exactly. So I'm also joined, we're also joined by longtime listener, first-time caller, uh, Nick. Nick, how are you? Doing wonderful. How are you guys today? So glad to be able to talk with you. Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great myself. God, it's a nice, beautiful day out, and uh, we watched some movies that I'd love to talk about. So um, the movies we're going to discuss today are Shin Godzilla, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, and Kick-Ass. So the first movie is Shin Godzilla, recommended by Drew. So uh, Drew, take it away. Do you have, uh, what is this movie about? All right, Shane Godzilla, uh, also called, called Godzilla Resurgence. Uh, I'm also going to call it Shin Gojira because I'm a pretentious douchebag. Uh, is from 2016, directed and written uh, by Hideki Anno, who I'm sure all of our fans know uh, is probably most famous for his work on the anime Neon Genesis Evangelion, which I would consider not just the best anime, but perhaps one of the best uh, works of creative uh, human endeavor. So anyway, Shin Godzilla is about a giant nuclear-fed monster uh, crawling on the shores of Tokyo and causing massive destruction uh, while politicians and bureaucrats struggle with red tape and public relations issues uh, in order and fail to combat the monster. Um, to provide some context, this was written uh, in response to the uh, Tohoku earthquake and tsunami that ultimately resulted in the Fukushima nuclear meltdown. So we have a Japanese nuclear disaster, and a good way to represent that is the OG, Gojira. Yeah, I mean, Godzilla initially was written as a you know an allegory for the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So, you know, updating it for a modern audience would obviously be the tsunami and the uh, the Fukushima nuclear disaster. So, you know, easy parallel to make there. Um, Nick, uh, what did you think about um, this movie? What did you think? So this is actually the only second Godzilla movie I ever watched. The first <laughs> one was the one with Brian Cranston a few years ago I watched with you. And from a standpoint of Godzilla first showing up, this movie was nuts the whole way through for me. And considering its budget, surprised me a lot. You know, I actually didn't look up the budget. It was, wow, $15 million? Okay. That explains uh, a lot about some of the criticisms I have. like The early Godzilla? Like, the CGI looking bad. <laughs> Um, but if they only had $15 million to play with, I guess that makes sense. Um, I will say that I don't think I enjoyed this as much as you guys. Uh, not because it's you know a Japanese language foreign film, uh, but because there were just too many things that I just did not like about it. Um, I, who is the main protagonist is a question I'll pose. Who is the protagonist, Drew? Yaguchi? Yeah, Yaguchi, absolutely. Yaguchi? I mean, sure. Was it the girl, the... The what is her? I don't even know her name. Um, the this ambassador to the United States. 
Oh yeah, I would also call her a secondary. Uh, her last name is Patterson. Patterson, yeah, it's like something Anne Patterson, I think. Um, but okay, so the only character development and or character motivations in this entire movie are from the humans are from Patterson, and it's a throwaway line in which she says, "One day I want to be the president of the United States." Everyone, no one else really has any motivation at all. So, uh, really, I, mean, I, I disagree with you completely. Yeah. How, however, I, I will say that uh, the "I want to be president of the United States" uh, line is very funny for me because she speaks a few lines of English in the movie, and they don't sound American. Yeah, I watched the dubbed, the English dubbed version. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I didn't catch any of the quote unquote English uh, in this movie. Um, I don't know but, if that's a problem. Oh, it, it's present because they, they want to sell her as this like American, which is really good because uh, one of the major themes of the movie is the you know U.S. Japanese relations uh, post war, and so having a Japanese American uh, kind of serve as that bridge and liaison uh, it, it, it's important. But you're right; I actually did not like her as a character, and perhaps in my humble opinion, one of the few stains in the movie. I um, I thought some other things I thought was that the human characters were just there's too many of them. Every single scene, uh, there's just a bunch of characters popping in with big white letters saying, you know, this is the Secretary of Defense Interior. Yes. This yes, is yes, the yes. blah blah blah. Like, and they're just one off, quick there to show disgust or I don't know. Through, throw red tape around and that's about it. And then they disappear. They never show up again. Yeah. And on that, that note, when you watch the dub, if you happen to watch it with subtitles, they don't even yeah. know how to name them half the time because they'll list the guy as hard hat guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I did watch with subtitles as well. So I watched the dub with subtitles. Um, yeah. That's how I watched it as well. I think I uh, the argument that that's the point, you know, the entire point of this is that the Japanese government uh, was too busy fighting bureaucracy to make decisions that there are too many characters to keep handle of, that there are too many titles to get a handle of. And there's this run-on joke that, like, Yaguchi, you know, gets more titles as the movie goes on. So if you watch it in Japanese, like, his title bar grows. Like, the entire, like, an hour and a half, like, in, like, his title bar is, uh, like, half of the screen. So at this point, you're saying Yaguchi's resume is just constantly padded by this disaster. Yes, because he, like, he is what a politician should be, in my opinion. Uh, he is uh, driven and both pragmatic and idealistic. I uh, will say my one of my favorite running, I don't know if it was a running gag, but running parts of this movie is where Yaguchi will say, one thing people will go that's not it and then immediately it's proven to be correct so like like in the beginning he goes i think it's a large marine animal when when you know something's still in the bay and godzilla hasn't emerged from the water yet there's a big geyser in the in the bay and yaguchi says i I think it's a large marine animal and everyone was like you're joking is that a joke this is a serious meeting be serious and then immediately someone walks up and is like yeah it's, it's a large marine animal or the prime minister saying in a, in a uh, press conference, you know, we don't believe it'll ever breach land. We don't think it can support its weight. And then like a guy interrupts, by the way, it's on the shore. Yeah. That happened like more than that. So there was a couple of times that happened where like one character would say, yeah, it's definitely X. 
someone gave, no, it's not. And then it would immediately be proven true. I thought that was, I laughed every time it happened and it happened like four or five times. <laughs> so my question for both of you guys is we uh, briefly mentioned the prime minister who is a, a central character in the film or at least three quarters of it, at least. Um, Nick, mm-hmm. is the prime minister a good prime minister? Is he a good man? Go. I think more it's a culture-bound question because throughout the entire film, I found him struggling to react versus following cultural norms of politics. Because throughout the whole movie, even though the world is falling apart around them, they're still doing the very proper Japanese culture hellos and how do they work through it to move forward. So I think he just spends the whole three quarters of the film that he's part of just trying to find that balance between the two. So you can't, I'd say he's neutrally good. Oh, okay. So, so good to neutral. Okay. How about you, Arista? I, I, I kind of agree. I mean, the part that really, you mentioned this, the part where he's giving a press conference and he was told like only present the facts and he says, oh, I want to reassure the people. And then that's why he says, like, it can't come on land. Don't worry. And then obviously it's immediately interrupted with, it's on land. But, uh, you know, he's he said, the mo- he said the reason why I did that was I wanted to reassure the people. So I think definitely at first his, his motivation is to, you know, protect his own people. And you can see uh, later on when the military is called in and there's still civilians in the area before they start bombing the shit out of Godzilla. Um, He's worried about like killing or damaging civilians. So I think in the context of saving his own people, yes, I would say he's, again, more neutral to good uh, at this point. So, yeah, I agree with Fenlon. I, I, I would make the argument he is a good man, which makes him a difficult politician. Uh, because, like, in my opinion, they didn't someone spell it out, but they have the opportunity to kill Godzilla in those pupil stages, that weird, ugly, crawly lungfish thing, you know? We'll, we'll talk about that, too. Um, oh, yeah, we'll talk about character design. But, like, yeah, I think they had opportunity to kill it there, and not when it comes back again as the Godzilla we know with that black, scaly carapace. Now, um, I, I will say the Prime Minister had my favorite line in the entire movie, uh, which was... They, in the very beginning, they consult with a bunch of experts, some biology experts, and they all pretty much just float whatever. And then as they leave that meeting, he goes, sorry to say, that was just a waste of time. The experts were lo- useless. And, like, slammed some folders down. <laughs> that was funny. I laughed. But it's my favorite line in the movie. Now, but those experts are useless. Oh, yeah, they were. The one guy was like, I'm a biologist, and it would be a discredit to my biology degree if I were to make any generalizing statements. So I'm not going to say anything. Like, okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah your reputation's more important than you know all of japan it's cool yeah <laughs> okay so so that brings up one of my like points of the film is like i i think the government underestimated the threat of the monster because like the very first thing they do when this giant uh well the, the first godzilla encounter is that tunnel that gets it almost collapsed and overrun with red blood um and the first thing they do is set up a liaison's office and a NPR council. Like, you know, it's not just, it gets revealed at the end of the movie that this isn't just a threat to Japan. Like, this is a threat to the human race. Humanity might not survive this. Um, and people are concerned about re-election. Like, the, the priorities are so off. Oh, um, there, was like, a, there, was a, there was a scene I, I wrote 
um, I wrote down and noted because it's very, you could draw parallels to right now with the, you know, coronavirus and that. Oh, it's like you chose this intentionally. There was a part where I think one of the ministers of whatever makes an argument like we should, um, we need to think of like the economy of the people in the Bay, like their jobs will be destroyed. So we should kind of move on quickly so we can reignite the economy locally. Like, okay, there's a giant monster stomping around and that guy's like, we need to think of the economy. You know, I was thinking of those memes of people like dinosaurs getting blown up from a meteor and one of them saying, oh shit, think of the economy. You know, (laughs) uh, visually, it's a good funny meme, I promise. But um, that's what I thought of, that, that, that part where... Some of the ministers were arguing about economic reinst- like reinstarting economic versus, you know, there's a giant fucking monster stomping around. It was stupid. Yeah, forget, like, because there's the giant monster stomping around. So people are, th- th- that same guy was just like, hey, foreigners are not investing in the yen. People aren't investing in the Japanese stock market. Um, but again, like, forget like Japan's lost at this point. Like, are we concerned that this thing will destroy the human race? Fuck stocks. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to argue at least 20% of my notes on this film where this could be solved by just disregarding the bureaucratic red tape. Yes. I mean, that was a main theme of this movie, uh, obviously, was just the, the red tape and bureaucracy yeah. just bogging it down. And I couldn't tell makes a comment on it in the hallway scene where they're all walking down the hallway to the conference room. Yeah. Even flat out says, he goes, the red tape is going to ruin all this. Well, yeah, but, but do you, do you know what the next line after that is, is the guy saying, but that's what makes democracy beautiful is the, the, the red tape and bureaucracy. I was thinking like, is this movie criticizing the Japanese government or kind of explaining why uh, the Fukushima disaster kind of happened? Like, I don't, um, so obviously this is a parallel to the Fukushima nuclear disaster uh, and the Japanese government like shit the bed hard in kind of recovering and uh, in, a, in a timely manner. It, it was They came under fire for the slow release of information and helping uh, citizens on the ground and stuff. So obviously this is a huge parallel to that. So that's kind of why I brought it up. Um, so um, I, I, a sub theme of that, not just the... Uh, difficulty with bureaucracy uh, and weird change of commands like yaguchi will will say like all right we need to do this in a meeting and like there's a, a scene where like four guys pop their heads up and say uh who were you addressing like yeah. you know there's no clear chain of command but there's no clear leadership the, the prime minister fails to pull the trigger and he, you know he also frequently there's a few times where he's just like well i want to do more research well i want to call in more experts well there's no precedent for this. What have other people have done? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the other major theme is like lack of real leadership and clear direction from the top, uh, which again might be a little commentary on uh, again that the Corona parallels is, is absolutely why I chose this movie. Yeah, I, and I see it obviously. Um, and what did you guys think of all of their coordinated blue jumpsuit? jackets and uniforms the multiple costume changes yeah during a a disaster (laughs) i just thought it was funny that i think they showed a a a 
a shot of the Diet, which is the, the Japanese prime, uh, parliament, rather. Mm-hmm. And I think all of the party members of different parties had coordinated jackets of different colors. Well, the only way to save the world is being color-coordinated. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I, I wrote down one of my notes. I swear this beginning part, which is like the first hour, is just the government officials saying something, immediately getting disproven, and then running into another room to say something else. So, yeah. Um, um, now, so, uh, uh, so how, how the Godzilla gets defeated is um, Yaguchi assembles a team of like misfits and, and intellectual heretics and like freaks and nerds because this is Hideki Anno. Only nerds and freaks can save the day. Um, I, I don't know her name, but what was that girl that was like the biologist woman who was just sarcastic and shit on everybody mm-hmm. who talked to her? She's my favorite character. Yes. Um, do you have any thoughts on on the uh, the team of misfits? Uh, I thought it was weird how they solved the killing Godzilla by it was like some weird sort of national treasure type thing where they have to solve a mystery from this dead professor who wrote yeah. like an encryption encrypted notes, and that's how they solved how to kill Godzilla. <laughs> it's a little Scooby Doo, I admit. <laughs> but you know that was funny. It was a fun fun plot to kind of keep the humans uh involved other than just calling in drone strikes but you know um yeah uh, nifty. So, uh, nick do you have any thoughts on 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 those guys i wish they would have expanded on machiavellian scientists who had all the notes because yeah that was they went to his boat his shoes were there and his notes were neatly wrapped up and here you go here's how to kill it yeah, was that a conspiracy by the American government? Because he, he was a professor in the USA, and he brought these concerns to the U.S. government, and they're like, "No." And then that's that was that. That's why he did this whole encrypted note thing. Yeah, it, it was implied that his wife died of like a nuclear exposure, um, but that was industrial. But you're right; there's this entire American uh, plot there, and so that that's kind of one of the major themes I wanted to bring up to both of you is. United States-Japanese relations is a huge theme, and I would argue uh, just as big of a theme as the bureaucracy theme. Um, Of course, after 1945, we did not allow the Japanese to have a standing offensive military. They have the uh, self-defense force, the the Japanese defense force, um, which has expanded a lot under the eyes of Shinzo Abe. So... uh, that there's this idea that all these Japanese characters don't want to rely on the American muscle, but the Americans are there the entire time, like meddling and, and in meetings. And, um, you know, they, they talk about like this uh, security bill that passed super easy because the Americans put muscle behind it. Like, so what are your thoughts on both Japanese American relations and what the movies comments on Japanese American relations? Well, I will say that uh, I agree, and I thought it was so... Didn't the Americans sort of back off, too, at one point as well when they couldn't kill Godzilla? They kind of gave up. And like, oh, well, you guys can deal with it now, which is a kind of a critique of, obviously, what the Americans do in the Middle East. Uh, well, we, we, we gave up, and they, then we immediately suggested the nuke. Yeah, exactly. With, like, say, the Kurds or something, you know? That's what the... that's. So what this is, is tracks with our history of foreign interference and uh, 
and stuff. Now, uh, I thought it was interesting how they struggled, uh, the, the, the prime minister struggled with finding laws that would let them, the Japanese defense force themselves handle this. There's this whole portion of the movie where they're trying to find a codified law in which they could attack Godzilla. And it was arguing like, well, is it an enemy, like an international enemy here? Like, that's what the law says. Can we do this? Can we do that? Nope, we'll just let the Americans handle it. And then the Americans fail at handling it because of fucking lasers. <laughs> so, uh, and then that's when the Japanese have to solve the issue themselves. So, you know, I, I agree. Uh, Nick, did you have anything to add to that as well? No, you pretty much touched on it. You're just, it's the U.S. military norm. Get involved, do the job three quarters of the way through, and then whatever happens, happens. And in this case, you know, Japan had to figure out how to kill Godzilla on their own because we couldn't beat it to death. Yeah. Yeah. I will, as, a, as an aside, my, one of my favorite scenes in this entire movie was when they're trying to find the Japanese law. And so there's a bunch of people like peering over a table, but the camera angle is up from the table and it's shown as like the, the, the law itself is written on the screen as people look at it and read it. Uh, it's hard to describe over audio, but you guys know what scene I'm talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I thought that was just like cool from a, like a cinematography standpoint. I thought it was cool. Um, but yeah, now um, I don't have anything else to really say about the themes of government or you and United States. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to, to bring up again, like the nuclear option, oh, yeah. uh, which the I, I mentioned that, like, I think that the Japanese American girl is subtracts more than she adds, but she has this very powerful scene where she like is nearly in tears. Like I will not see a third bomb dropped on Japan by the United States. And it hurt. I, I, I was really hurt by that scene because uh, I think foreign films are really good at this is like, I, I know the three of us are not jingoistic enough to believe that the United States are the good guys, but it's yeah. very easy to point at the atrocities of other nations. Uh, again, the Japanese are not above that. You know how, um, I've talked about Germany pretty much on every podcast I've been on. Uh, and so the, I don't think we talk enough about the uh, two nuclear bombs that we dropped and the emotional and, and physical scars that that caused an entire generation. Yeah. I, don't they save the day within like an hour of the United States dropping a nuke on Tokyo? Like well, they, they, they kill Godzilla or whatever to him. Uh, and then it, like, doesn't Yaguchi get like a, we were an hour away from dropping that nuke. Yeah. He yeah. Like a window of time to try his plan before they went to the nuclear option. Yeah. So, I mean, the United States can't solve the issue. So we bomb the shit out of it. My, my biggest blight with the whole nuclear option is here at this point, when they decide to go that route, they know the monster is nuclear powered. <laughs> yeah. So why is more nuclear radiation the answer? <laughs> That's a great question and something that they should have brought up. But, you know, the United States uh, wasn't thinking. We just kind of want to bomb the shit out of it. So, um, yeah, solid. I didn't really pick up uh, on the, the United States kind of theme because I was thinking more about the other stuff. Uh, you know, the nuclear Fukushima disaster is kind of the lens I was watching it with. But you're you're absolutely right, Drew. So uh, nice. Oh, oh, I I, I caught that uh, a lot more this time around, mostly because 
uh, as I mentioned, like in, in modern Japanese politics, uh, what is the role of the Japanese Defense Force and their relations to the United States uh, is a hotly debated topic that we're revisiting today. Mm -hmm. um, so, because this is more suited for the wonderful Alcoholics podcast, but like, um, how do you create a defense force? What is it a defensive weapon versus what's an offensive weapon? It, it's, it's a debate. Yeah. Um, Solid. So I, I did want to bring up uh, character design. Yeah. Well, I wanted uh, to talk about Godzilla as a whole, so we can kind of do this together because I think Godzilla is fucking ugly in this movie. I think he looks terrible. The he looks terrible. He looks frightening. That's great. The first iteration of the monster... I wasn't even sure it was supposed to be Godzilla for like half the movie. I wrote, I wrote down my, one of my notes early on is I hope this isn't Godzilla. Cause this thing is ugly as fuck with the, like fish eyes and that sort of deal. It looked uh, like the, um, what are, what are the eyes that like move around when you shake them? Like the, the cartoony. Like, like googly eyes? Googly eyes. It looked like they just like super glued some googly eyes on them. Yeah, I, I I did not like the design of Godzilla. I thought it was a poor choice. Um, I so disagree. Tiny, I mean, he has tiny ass arms. He looks like Drew circa 2012. Oh! My, my one note is nubs for arms, question mark. Yeah. Never yeah. mind, claws appear out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, was a, that was an unnecessary hit at Drew. I get it. Uh, he's got little tiny arms and his tail is like way too big uh the balance of walking would be difficult with a tail that is three times the size of your regular body i don't know i, I didn't like i didn't like his predator mouth that opened his jaw opened up like the predator does you know what i'm talking about yeah the, the, the unhinged yeah like it's split in half down the middle and then it kind of opens up like i did that was weird it's just not not the Godzilla I was expecting, is what I should say. Oh, so you know, he did blunder. I think that's a good thing. Sound like a drunkard trying to use a building to hold himself up. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I wrote one of my notes is what the fuck is this mouth? And then I wrote fucking laser spikes. So I will say the cool, the coolest scene is when he shoots the laser for the first time, and he starts by breathing fire and then honing it into a laser. That was cool. It was cool as shit. And then shoots off lasers from his back spikes, annihilating the air force, or whatever. Uh, that was cool. So that I liked. But yeah, Drew, give me your defense of Godzilla design. I love the character design. I thought it was fascinating. Uh, I, I I did not want to see the same Godzilla because this Godzilla was weird and awkward and not put together in the same proportions that a earthling creature would be put together it's supposed to be this ugly unnerving you know you, you don't even know where to begin with it because it doesn't look like anything else and i love that long long tail that just yeah it, it doesn't look natural because it is this nuclear rapid expansion and even the early stages that um flopped around awkwardly on land and spilled blood everywhere uh, it, it's it's unnerving. I think that this really was part political thriller and part horror movie because that scene where you know he's destroying Tokyo and they're they're pretty much as you said they, like the military's given up uh, and they just let it tire itself out and the city's burning as it's walking and 
it's this purple glow against this red fiery backdrop it's I, th- I think it's scary i really think that they accomplished the goal there see during that scene where they're starting to evacuate tokyo i think my favorite line happens when godzilla like just freezes for a while because he runs out of energy they make a really really bad joke about traffic <laughs> yeah, yeah. They cut to gridlock everywhere yeah i so i i, I appreciated how they made it like Frieza from Dragon Ball Z, where it just, you know, had different forms and started off as like this aquatic fish thing with gills and then turns into a, a lung fish and then some, what is that, that red, the red middle third form or whatever it was before becoming the giant black and red Godzilla. It's uh, over 9,000. I'm so glad you say that because a lot of people on the internet refer to it as like Dragon Ball Z Godzilla. Because they even make a line in the movie that, like, oh, this is only its fourth form. And I'm like, I've seen this before. Yeah, exactly. That's what made me think of it, too. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Frieza. Um, Okay, so we explained the the bad CGI due to budget. But I want to bring up, again, that some of the CGI was not great. Uh, The scene specifically where they throw a bunch of train bombs at Godzilla, that looked kind of bad. Yeah. Agreed. Um, just perfectly placed in a metro area railroad bridge. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's a good, this is a good point part to bring up how they defeat Godzilla. So correct me if I'm wrong. They, they drone bomb him a bunch of times and then they blow up buildings to drop buildings on him. And then they drive a bunch of crane platoons to crane in this freezing coagulant into its mouth. So then he slows down and gets frozen. Is that correct? Yes, but see, those aren't actually crane platoons, and I only know this because I work in construction for a living. Good. Concrete pump trucks. So they use those trucks to pump concrete somewhere where you can't put a truck. (laughs) Well, Godzilla's mouth is (laughs) where you would want to put it. But yeah, but like they use the buildings to like guide him to where they want him staged. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So can we talk about the last shot of the movie, which was Godzilla frozen in place, and then it the camera kind of focuses on his tail, and it goes up, and the very tip of his tail, there's these, like, humanoid-looking creatures coming off, but also frozen in place? Was that What was that about? What do you think, Drew? Uh, it's his final evolution. Um, they, they mentioned that, like, this isn't just a threat to Japan. This is a threat to the world. Uh, how will the human race survive after this? Um, there's a possibility that can, it, it's immortal and it can evolve forever. It could evolve wings and go. And so it evolves to its environment every time. The lungfish doesn't survive on land. So that's why it grew to be that tall, you know, horrible monster. And so I think that the, the fifth evolution is it recognizing the only way I can survive this is to evolve into a humanoid-looking, you know, immortal beast with wings. And it's so creepy and eerie. I love it. Yeah. Uh, Nick, what did you think of that last kind of eerie shot there? I mean, Drew definitely hit how I felt about it on the head. It's just, it's evolving to fit its environment like most predators do you know, to stay ahead of the curve and stay ahead of the evolutionary chain. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So same thing, obviously. Same thing, thoughts here as well. Just interesting. Now I would watch... Yeah, I, I would watch that if they, if they made Shin Godzilla 2 with these giant or these mini mutant Godzilla creatures running around uh, and make it like a, I don't know, like a horror movie or something. I would totally watch it. Watch that. So, you know, sequel coming up, I hope. But um, Well, they did claim Godzilla's cells had a half-life of three years, so maybe this thing could reawaken somehow. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, didn't they say to? Oh, I guess what are they going to do with the Godzilla body now? Because it's frozen in place. So, what are they going to do with it? Uh, uh, another build a theme park around it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if that was the, if that was Texas, then maybe. <laughs> but a line that they use when they they bring that up in conversation is that Yaguchi says we're going to have to live with Godzilla. And I think that's the metaphor for, again, like Godzilla is the metaphor for nuclear power. Yeah. We've already opened up Pandora's box. There's no going back to pre-nuclear Japan. There's no yeah. going back to, you know, it, it's happened. We've committed an atrocity. Uh, there's no putting nuclear power back in the box. We have to live with nuke. Um, and so that's, I, I think that it's a great symbol of that 90 foot monster in the middle of Tokyo that we have to live with this now. Gotcha. So, okay, so we're uh, running a little long on this, so I want to briefly touch on it, and I don't want to lose Nick unless you've seen Evangelion, but the the director, right, he directed episodes of Evangelion, is that correct? He uh, directed and wrote the entirety of it. So there's a couple stretch of, maybe is it one or two episodes of Evangelion, the anime, where I'm thinking of the one with the, the pyramid-shaped angel that comes down, and then all of the the government and people have to work together. It's the one with the big sniper gun. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That reminded me of this movie reminded me a lot of that, where it's a lot of like the bureaucrats and red tape going on while formulating this plan. And that, that's kind of what I thought. Uh, oh, absolutely. This is, uh, Anno hitting a lot of those same notes, uh, which I really like because, um, again, like the, the loving of the geek and freak and otaku, um, and that love of the kaiju and that big scary monster. Um, this is totally Ava themed. They even did a promotion uh, to sell the movie in Japan where like that ugly black giant Godzilla is fighting unit one from Ava. Yeah. Ah, it's so good. I noticed, so some of the things I, I wrote down was that they, they used the same composer as Evangelion. Yes. Apparently same theme. Uh, yes, like the battle theme is used. Uh, Thank you. You beat me to the punch. Yes, battle theme is used uh, in in both Ava and this movie. It's not even like uh, it's slightly remixed, but it's literally the same song. Solid. So um, yeah. they also used uh, the Gojira theme from 1954. That that march, you know. I did And then I, I appreciate how they kept Godzilla's roar as well. So. Mm-hmm. The, that's that. Um, all right, Nick, uh, do you have any final thoughts on this movie, and what would you give it out of 10? Out of 10, I'd give this a 7. Okay. Just because the English dub does make it a little off-putting to watch occasionally yeah. during some of like the bureaucratic scenes, but there's nothing you can do about that, obviously, for it not being intent to be shot in English. Um, overall, it was a good entry. I, I watched it with my girlfriend the other day, and my girlfriend hates movies. And ironically, this drew her in, of all things. <laughs> Solid. 
Uh, nice. Okay, uh, Drew, what would you give it out of ten? And any more final thoughts on it? Um, eight out of ten. I thought this was a great political movie that harbors a lot of conversation. And just like Anno's other works, it doesn't tell you government bad, government good, uh, or this or this character is bad, this character is good. It's doesn't tell you the answers. It leaves a lot of things complex. It doesn't tell you what he thinks Japanese relations with the U.S. should be in the post-war era. Uh, so it harbors a lot of conversation, harbors a lot of thought. I thought it was shot brilliantly for the budget. I thought the creature design was awesome. Um, and again, I'm an Anno fanboy, so 8 out of 10. Would recommend to everybody. Solid. I uh, didn't, I don't have as high an opinion as you guys do. I thought the, you know, the CGI was kind of bad. But it's foreign language film, and the budget was only $15 million, so that one I can excuse a bit. Uh, I thought the humans existed as mouthpieces just to show the frustration and lack of action for the, from the Japanese government. I mean, every human scene was just them in a boardroom arguing about something just to move to another boardroom to argue about something else. And it was I thought those parts were kind of boring. Like, uh, I didn't appreciate them as much as you did, Drew. So, um, you know, that's, I guess, a difference of opinion which is fine. Um, I'm giving this a five out of 10, to be honest. I did not like the design of Godzilla that much. Uh, you know, his tiny baby arms uh, was, I don't know. I just didn't enjoy the, the design of Godzilla that much. Uh, some scenes were cool. The laser scenes, Godzilla lasering the shit out of stuff was neat, but just some things I just didn't care for. Um, but that's, that's that. Uh, I'm glad I watched this movie, uh, really. It's the first foreign language movie that we did on the pod, technically. I mean. Mad Max was in German. Mad Max is an Australian film, so maybe that's the next one technically. But um, you know, I I, uh, I enjoyed it. I appreciated watching it. Thank you for suggesting it. I don't know if I'll watch it again, to be honest. So that's that. Um, the next one, the next movie we watched was Mad Max Fury Road from two thousand and fourteen. Um, fifteen. I'm sorry, two thousand fifteen which is the one that I had suggested. Um, so the movie is uh, set in the future, a post-apocalyptic where uh, world where water is very scarce and gasoline is uh, you know, uh, as worth its weight in gold, essentially. Like gasoline is very sought after as well. And the story opens with the main character, Max, sort of, well, arguably the main character, Max, um, Kind of coming, getting caught by uh, what's called war boys or a group of people who uh, live, serve under a warlord named Immortan Joe. And he is Mad Max. Max himself is designated as a universal blood donor. And so he's used as a blood bag as uh, one of Immortan Joe's uh, subjects called Imperator Furiosa. She is going on a trip to gas town which to go get some gasoline and trade their produce but she uh, in fact smuggles out some women uh, they're the five wives they're breeders for Immortan Joe and Imperator Furiosa is smuggling these women out to live a better life because they're essentially slave labor uh, and so Furiosa wants to save these women and it's a two-hour car chase uh, with a lot of stuff going on I uh, will say I really like this movie um, so Nick, uh, why don't you, can you give me some thoughts on, uh, on this at all? Anything to add to the plot at all? Anything like that? 
I, I'm going to say I spent at least half the movie going, what the fuck is going on? I, in a good way or a bad way? In, in a shocked way. I had zero history with the Mad Max franchise before this film. Yeah, I, I would say I've never seen any of the other ones. There's, That's all I know. The the original, tri- I think it's a original trilogy, was from like the 70s and 80s with Mel Gibson as Max Rakotansky. And they're very like kind of low-budgety DIY Australian movies, um, which is fine. I've just never seen them. So I went into, I went into Fury Road Blind as well. Um, but anyway, keep going. It was just like one struggle. It's like the movie's a constant power struggle for resources. Mm-hmm. And this weird breeding aspect of Joe and yeah. five wives and mother's milk and all of this. <laughs> yeah, so... This is dripping with a lot of symbolism as well. And what I like about this movie is it's a great example of show, don't tell movie making. A lot of the world building is shown to you, not told to you. Uh, For example, uh, I wrote some down. Um, They call uh, people who are mechanics, they refer to them as black thumbs. They're like, oh, are you a black thumb? Instead of like, would you think like a green thumb is good at growing a garden? They call mechanics black thumbs. Uh, those people on the stilts in the foreground of one scene, they're like walking around on an irradiated desert or whatever, and they're on stilts kind of just walking around. I thought that was, again, neat neat story world building that they don't tell you. Like, oh, those people are the stock walkers or whatever. They don't say that. They just kind of show you. Uh, there's a bunch of others that I can go into as well. But Drew, what did, what did you think of this movie in general? I, I did really like the language because uh, language evolves super, super fast. And so human beings growing in an environment like that, like they're going to still like speak Australian English, but their language is going to be so different. Um, Again, not to alienate too much of our audience, but have either of you two, are you familiar with uh, Warhammer 40K? Yes. No. Uh, This gave me so much Warhammer vibes. um, And that's a high compliment because the aesthetic is that uh, it's so unique that Mad Max of that that piecing together armor with industrial equipment there's nothing like it you know you're looking at something mad max when you're looking at something like that and i i love the aesthetic so for nick uh warhammer 40k is supposed to be like a futuristic tabletop game they made video games out of it too which is where i know it from but it's like space, uh, space travel and like space hyper militarized. Like there's an emperor and a military and space marines. It's kind of all you need to know. But you can I can see the parallels Drew is making with uh, Immortan Joe, who is kind of militarized. He's a warlord, so he's got like his badges and stuff, and he has subjects um, and uh, etc. I don't know where to begin because there's so much to digest with this movie. I really liked it. Um, Fun fact, uh, the cars, all of the vehicles were all drivable. They all, they, you could ride those on the road. They were all, most of the effects in this movie were practical, except for the sandstorm scene, which was the, like a big CGI fest. But the rest were all practical. They really blew those cars up. They drove those cars through the desert. They did all that stuff. So I thought that was cool. Um, Nick, what did you, did you like the car design? I know you're, you're more of a car guy than I am. So I was. Yeah, I liked the whole. Mad Max car design where everything's pieced together just to make it work in that environment. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't help myself but spending a lot of the time trying to figure out what each thing was underneath. 
That's that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. As far as I'm concerned, half of that is like, here's a do knob. How does it work? It's magic. Yeah, I. That's the the downside to the show don't tell world building that I was appraising earlier. Is that you go, what what is that? <laughs> like, how does that work? Why why is that working like that? You know, uh, an example is the. <laughs> The Doof Warrior, which is the guy, the blind guy playing the guitar. Uh, I thought, like, the vehicle itself has a bunch of drums on the back, and strapped to the front of it hanging is this blind mutant-looking deformed guy playing a guitar that shoots flames, and his role is simply just to be, I don't know, like a like a drummer boy in any standard army or something from... Yeah, I took it that way as he was the one who set the pace. Yeah, yeah. But it was just an example of that could be like, what the fuck is that about? Where no one explained it. No one said, that's the Doof Warrior. No one said anything like that. The only reason I know his name is because I looked it up. Um, so, I mean, I enjoyed that aspect. I thought it was funny in like a fun kind of way. I admire the originality of this world and the characters. Um, just to, I don't know if you guys caught the names of the characters, but they're all super interesting. Um, so... Charlie Theron plays Imperator Furiosa. Um, there's one of the war boys whose name is Nux. Then there's Immortan Joe, the bad guy. The wives, did you guys catch the names of all the wives? I caught a couple. I think one was Toast. Yeah, her name is Toast the Knowing. Uh, there's Capable, the Dag, Cheeto the Fragile, and then the Splendid Angarid. <laughs> I thought that was nifty. Just the way these names were... Um, some of the other names, one of uh, Immortan Joe's sons, the big muscular one, his name is Rictus Erectus, and he he yells his own name. I don't know if you noticed this, when he ripped, he, he ripped a car engine out of a car and he yelled his own name. Um, the People Eater, that's uh, the, the guy from Gastown with the deformed legs. Uh, the Bullet Farmers, um, the Doof Warrior, like I said. Uh, and there's some other names. The Water Spout. What'd you say? What did he call the water spout? Oh, what did he call that water spout? I can't. The, the, you're talking about the big thing where he like released all the water for the poor yeah, people. He was called like Aquacola. Aquacola, yeah, that's what he calls it, Aquacola. Like, Which is great because it's like, here's this post-capitalistic uh, society, but we're still so ingrained with a lot of those like capitalist ideals and like advertising that even that cola doesn't exist anymore, but we're still using that. Yeah, yeah. And the best is like the line when he first released, he goes, oh, don't get addicted to it now, and then shuts it right off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, gosh, yeah. And then the mother's milk comes from a bunch of what I assume to be old breeders. So they yeah. converted the old breeders into producing breast milk and call it mother's milk. Um, that was the first scene where I just audibly whispered, what in the actual fuck am I watching? Yeah. <laughs> okay. can, can I elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah. go for it. Um, so the what this movie does well, and I think we got a little bit in Shin Godzilla, but this cranked it up to a hundred. Um, body horror as well as alienating the audience. Yeah, like you're the you're you're right. Like that is very early in the scene. It's just watching these uh, women uh, breast get get pumped uh, of milk. Uh, there's a scene where like halfway through where um, Max is covered in blood and it's someone else's. And he washes it off with, you know, human milk. Um, 
it really turns off the audience and everyone is deformed because in this post-nuclear world, everyone has deformalities. Even Rictus, who's pretty much a physical specimen, uh, still has a concentrator and a nasal cannula in. Um, Immortan Joe has uh, a metal fucking CPAP in his face. Yeah. yeah. Um, every, everyone's a mutant. Well, um, even, even Imperator Furiosa, she has one arm. Um, exactly. And, and the, the, then talk about show, don't tell. I assume that it got ripped off in combat, but they, no, it really shows that she just was born one yeah. arm and that's her, her deficit. Um, the, the war boys, they're all, they, they refer to them as half-life. They all are like mutants from, uh, from assuming radiation. Um, now when I say mutants, I don't mean cool mutants. I mean like they're irradiated and they have deformities. Uh, like they almost look like people who are being treated with chemotherapy. They're very pale. They're yes. Like... Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, and then all, all the poor people that live in the underbelly of the citadel, where Amortan Joe is from, all they they all have like missing limbs. They all look deformed a bit. Uh, and then the only really perfect people are the wives. So that's why um, Immortan Joe breeds with them. And there's a scene where um, the splendid Angarid, she she's pregnant. Uh, but she gets run over by a car, and so the what's it, he's an they call him an organic mechanic. So he's like the doctor, I guess. But he says like the baby boy would have been perfect in every way. Uh, so you know you have to see that like perfection or non mutations is what uh, Immortan Joe because his uh, you mentioned it, Drew. This one son, Rictus Erectus can't breathe or live without machinery. And then there's another son who is, uh, I don't even know how to describe him. He's like wheelchair bound essentially and more deformed. Um, so what did you guys think of the action in this movie, the car chases and all that stuff? I have, I have one final commentary about the war boys in the chemo. Oh, yeah. Go for it. Um, okay. So again, that show don't tell thing really well done um, because so they kidnap Max for his blood, which yes. by the way, I know Nick used his, uh, you know, construction knowledge here. Here's where the one time in a podcast where I get to be nurse drew again, they do fucking whole blood infusions in this movie. All right. Yeah. With a fish. Like with a fuck. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so like without getting and boring the audience too much, um, the ABO typing only matters with packed red blood cells, whole blood. You're going to have a transfusion reaction. Fuck that. Uh, so, so uh and even at the end of the movie where like um max gives uh imperator uh Perosa an infusion he just grabs fucking dirty iv tubing and does it like wholesale Whoa, oh, okay he had that iv tubing wrapped around his wrist the entire movie yeah again nurse drew who's all concerned about sterile technique with ivs Oh, oh, baby, that that that's the only scene in this movie that made me fucking shiver. Well, what was yeah. the reaction to Max um, PTSD? The entire movie was a big theme as well for him. Yeah, um, but, but so like I wanted to conclude because Nux he talks about uh, Larry and Barry not yeah. crushing on my windpipe. His mates, uh, and it, it's these. It looks like lymphoma. It's right on his neck. You know where, where a lot of lymph nodes are. And, and that's these huge these, the tumors, and they look they look really like lymphoma tumors. Ironically enough, my mother's lymphoma uh, tumor, she's in remission, guys, she's fine, um, 
it, in the same exact spot. And we called it Mickey because it had two uh, small lobes and a big lobe at the bottom. So it looked like Mickey Mouse's head. And so when Nux like names his lymphoma tumor, I'm like, oh, that literally happened to me. Like, I, I enjoyed that. Just just a weird personal side note. Yeah. I One one thing Nux says is that if Larry and Barry doesn't kill him, the night fevers or night shivers will. So they even, they refer to the war boys as half-life too. They don't say like mm-hmm. he's at the end of his half-life, meaning they all know that they're going to die. Like it's, their purpose is to just be, just the, the the army for Immortan Joe. Actually, before we jump into the action, which I do want to talk about, what did you guys think of the sort of culture? I don't know what else to describe it. It's almost like a religion culture where they, um, like everything is shiny and chrome. That's like the ape. Witness me. Yeah, the witness me. We're going to ride through Valhalla. They sort of worship the driver wheels, the driving wheels of a, of a car. Well, the, the V8 hand sign I thought was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, folding your hands like an eight so it looked like the upward pistons of an engine. Uh, not just a V8 engine, but Valhalla, of course, starts with a V and has eight letters. So. Ooh. I just I like those touches. I thought those were cool. Uh, Nick, did you? What did you think of that? I refer to it as a religion than more than a cult. Yeah. Because like you said, they literally inhale liquid chrome throughout multiple parts of the movie. Yeah. And this draws back to the guitar player guy. You know, they have the Valhalla reference, the guitar player. It's almost like a Viking-esque hierarchy, mm-hmm. which is how this progresses through, you know, making their way to Valhalla and being witnessed is your death worthy of you crossing over. Yes. Yeah. Loved it. I loved it. In, in a hopeless landscape like that, you need something to anchor yourself in hope. And I, I think uh, the the cult of Immortan Joe, as you said, like, uh, Nox and the War Boys worship him. Like Nox freaks out just because uh, Morton Joe just has eye contact with them for a second. Yes, I mean, him, that's like meeting Jesus. There's yes. a scene later on where they move Nox up to Joe's vehicle, and the guy who has Nox's boot like freaks out in order to get up there with him. Yeah, I have his boot. Let me ride. Let me up too. And then they don't. They don't. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's just the the. The deity, the deification of Immortan Joe. I mean, his name is Immortan Joe, like Immortan. And I, I like the pigeon language that they co- sort of built out of this as well. Um, so. Which I wanted to bring up, like, so the title of Imperator, uh, which I know I'm saying like a douchebag. Um, so, like, that's something from our world. Like, the, in the late Roman Republic, early Roman Empire, uh, Imperator wasn't, like, a rank you didn't it was a title that you earn you know if i slayed a dragon i would be drew the dragon slayer mm-hmm. uh, imperator means that you added land you added territory to the empire you are imperator oh. uh so i thought that was very like i'm pretty sure it's not as deep as i'm making it but i thought that was a very interesting touch that like this is a, a honored title that you are imperator that you are a, a imperial yeah, I, I got that sense as well that Immortan Joe only bestows that title on uh, people worthy of it. So I thought her, I thought the whole thing was given to her, Imperator Furiosa, but her name was Furiosa before. When they they do eventually, so to keep the plot going, they do eventually meet up with. Uh, so 
Imperator Furiosa is bringing the breeding women, the wives, to what's called the Green Place, which is where Furiosa was born, because they will have a, get a better place there. It's where allegedly, like, uh, the land can grow. The land is fertile, and seeds and stuff can grow. There's produce, and when they eventually meet up, it's a barren wasteland still. And the women that they meet up with are—it's all women—and they say, like, "Oh, there's a that's a that's a that's our Furiosa." So, you know, that's that was her name beforehand. Um, now it's revealed that uh, the green place was destroyed. The, the earth turned sour, as one puts it, and so they, there's no place to return to, which causes a you know an emotional breakdown to uh, Furiosa, and they eventually decide to go back, go back to the citadel, you know, free the people, kill Immortan Joe, because the citadel had water uh, that was pumped up from the earth, and it had vegetable like greenery and stuff. There was vegetation, so that's where they decide to go back and and uh uh kind of take over again uh yeah, now all of joe's forces were out chasing them exactly yeah he called on the bullet farm and gas town uh troops <laughs> whatever you want to call it to chase down his wives and there's one point where the bullet farmer says all this for a family squabble and yeah this shows that imperator um i'm sorry Immortan joe uh was invested in that so now let's finally go to what did you guys think of the action, which was the, pardon the pun, the driving force of this movie. <sighs> but but yeah, the the I do the action sequences were coordinated so well. Um, not just the hand to hand combat on foot, but uh, the shooting and uh, while driving, and the uh, boarding of vehicles while driving. Again, that storytelling is like, oh, these people are so trained uh, in this universe to do repairs while the car is in motion, yeah. to uh, fight each other in, in motion uh, while 60 miles an hour, or maybe 100 miles an hour on empty salt flats. Mm-hmm. So well done. Yeah. Uh, Nick, what did you think? So I agree with Drew on everything, but they also took the time to do one important thing in an action movie that is very often overlooked. They took time to reload the weapons. Yeah. Yes. How many times do you watch an action movie and a nine millimeter somehow magically has 50 freaking rounds in it? They even make it, make a point of it where, um, toast the knowing is, uh, grabbing all the bullets. And she says like, this gun has 30 bullets. This guy has five. This has four and Max shoots some, and she goes, you have one left. You have two left. So, Okay, but that same scene, like, so um, she has, he has that, like, long rifle. I believe it's, like, an SRS. Um, and, like, uh, Max shoots it twice. Um, and then he hands it to Furiosa. And she uses his shoulder as, like, a mount, which I mean, I'm sure Nick, maybe, or you two had the thought, man, firing an SRS next to someone's fucking ear? Yeah. They, their eardrum would not they were just fucking blown out. They would just, oh. I watched this movie with Caitlin and I turned to her and I said, the dude's going to have no eardrum. Like, yeah. He won't go deaf from that. But. And she makes the comment, don't breathe, as she goes to take the shot, which also acknowledges, hey, you know, I need you to be really, really fucking still because I only got one chance at this. Mm-hmm. So th- I, this is a good transition because I want to talk about the specific dynamics between max and imperator furiosa now max is the quote-unquote main character i don't think he's the main character he's not the main character no, no. This movie's about furiosa 
she has the most complete character arc. In fact, Max has no character arc. He has no character development whatsoever. Furiosa is the one that really uh, goes through the traditional main character arc. So when this movie first came out, people, uh, bad faith people who are dumb, freaked out about this being a feminist movie. And like, this is all stupid. Like, obviously, I don't hold these opinions whatsoever. But a criticism these people had was that this movie like feminizes Max and makes Furiosa the main character is bullshit, blah, 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 blah. Um, so I agree that a main theme of this movie is feminism uh, and like women taking control over domineering men. So do you guys, did you guys pick up on that at all? I'll go with Nick. Did you pick up on that when you were watching it? Or Drew? All right. Um, so one thing I do, I do want to give the movie a lot of props for. So as you said, like get to the green uh, we actually, Drew, we're going to pause for one second. Um, I think Nick dropped out for one moment, so I'm going to stop recording. And I don't know how to edit this, so we're all going to be listening to this as it goes. So one moment, I'm going to stop recording, and I'm going to restart this recording again. So I'm going to stop recording now. All right, so apologies for the technical difficulties. I don't know how to edit this stuff, so we're just going to roll with it. Now, previously, uh, I had discussed, I want to reframe the question a bit. So I had said that uh, Furiosa had the character arc, the main character arc of this movie. Um, now, Nick, do you agree with that, disagree with that? What are your thoughts on that? In terms of character growth and change, I'm going to argue that Nux had the most. Oh, yeah. Interesting opinion. All right. Yeah. Because he I will... literally flipped from one side to the other of being a soulless half-life trying to die to, I'm going to go romantically involved with one of the wives. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I have something to live for. Yes, yeah. So he, it's sort of like a change of religion for him too, right? Because it was previously like, a, you know, as we said, the, the witness me, ride to Valhalla, that was his thing. He freaked out that Immortanjo glanced in his direction and that turns complete opposite to like seeing what reality it actually is. So solid. Um, good. I, I, I didn't even think about that. That's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I didn't even write that down um, as a note, but okay. Uh, now, so to return to my previous question, I discussed how this, there's a lot of feminist themes in this movie um, and whichever spectrum you, you want to ally yourself with the correct one or the incorrect one. Um <laughs> Uh, I, I do think that feminism is a major theme of this film. Um, so, Drew, did you sort of pick up on on that? Yes, because, well, okay, so I, I have two kind of points here. Uh, one, I think a lot of the body horror in the movie is, uh, you know, violating the space of the woman and violating the space of the mother. Like, we're treating the... Uh, the breeders in the very like opening of the movie as fucking cattle and even the the brides the breeders uh that loss of sexual autonomy and bodily autonomy that's you know horrific in of itself um but uh, why i would consider this like feminist if you were going to use that word is that the women have agency uh all the brides by the end of the movie realize and are getting more comfortable with 
having control over their life and their situation. Yes. Uh, one even tries to go back, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, is very telling that it's easy to go back to uh, abusive, horrifying situations because at least there was stability. Um, yeah. But I, I also really liked that when they cross the green, as it were, we get encountered the, the women who are old and I'm not, I'm going to say not traditionally pretty. Uh, women aren't allowed to be old in movies. Yeah. Um, so seeing these middle-aged to elderly women with fucking rifles, you know, kicking ass. I, I love that. Cause it's not just like, Oh, these, you know, sexy women in clad in white can kick ass. You know, we have old women who aren't necessarily viewed as sexual objects allowed to be people in this world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Now, agree. Like, I think my favorite line was when the, the two older women were in, like, the back canopy on the truck. And they just go, one bullet, one body. And just start yeah. kicking off people with the rifle. Mm-hmm. They were badass. They're, they're, I think they're called the Vuvalini. Yeah. Uh, they're badass, uh, which is cool. Like they're the the most badass characters are those women. Um, so I want to real quick because I do know we have to move on. Uh, some other things I wanted to mention as well is that there is a theme of like home and what makes what constitutes your home. Uh, you know, Furiosa was stolen from her childhood home as presumably slave trade. She says like she's been away for. It was like a certain number of days, like 7,000 days or something. And they asked, like, what happened to your mother? She didn't make it past day three. You know, she was stolen from her home. This movie is about Furiosa trying to bring the five wives to a new home and then kind of reconstructing what they view as home when they go back to the Citadel sort of thing. So that was nifty, something I thought about. Um, A few hot, quick notes. Um, They called bullets the anti-seed because when you plant one, everything dies. That was a nifty uh, little little word phrase in there. Um, the Tom Hardy who plays Max, uh, he actually when he was filming this movie, he did not understand it at all. He didn't understand. It. He clashed with the director George Miller on the vision of the movie, and they say like tensions were really high. It was a really stressful shoot. Tom Hardy didn't get it, and then he said that once he saw the finished product and movie, he instantly understood the vision and what everything was going for. And it was like, George Miller's a genius. So, you know, <laughs> that was interesting. Um, let's see. I, I don't know if I have any more other notes uh, about this movie other than um, I really like this film. Uh, and so the website, a website called the AV club, they did a list of the best 100 films of the 2010s. And they named this movie. Number one, <laughs> they named Mad Max Fury road. Number oh. one, movie of the 2010s so controversial opinion but i really like it so i'm not going to argue with it oh what's your rating out of 10 nine nine out of ten i think it's a fantastic movie i i admire the originality of the characters and the world it feels fresh despite this is a fourth movie installment in a movie series and i've never seen the originals so i don't know how fresh this is but it, it came in a time when this is a fresh movie the all the characters are interesting and have depth, uh, except for Max. Honestly, I think Max has the least amount of depth, which is fine because he takes a side. He sits on the sidelines for most of the movie, which is fine. I mean, the dude had like 
five minutes of total dialogue. He has, he's, he, he has maybe one or two conversations and he doesn't even say his name until the end of the movie. He says, my name's Max. And I mean, obviously we know it because we watched the opening credits that his name is Max, but like that's, I admire that a movie had the courage to do that as well. Sideline the main character. So I think this is a really good movie. Um, nine out of 10 for me. My only gripe really is um, that it's a little long, but I didn't think that I didn't feel the length watching it, but you know, it's two hours long. So um, Nick, what did you think of this movie? Do you have any final thoughts? Anything else you want to say about it? I'm going to give it an eight out of 10 in terms of how I viewed it. But my thoughts on it were while yes, Max is not the main focal point. A lot of his decision-making is a result of him like reacting to PTSD around him and things that trigger him. And that kind of also portrays on the world around him and what's going on. Yeah. And all of his choices really just like he has a PTSD flashback and then boom, he makes a choice to do something to correct something he did before. Yeah. I, I guess we didn't really touch on that is that Max has a lot of, and this is a, another example of the show. Don't tell where Max has flashbacks of a little girl. We're assuming maybe his daughter. I don't know. Um, and a little girl then reacting to those flashbacks. It's not like Max is, they could have, they could have easily had a scene where it's nighttime, they're sitting around a fire and Max is talking to Imperator Furiosa and saying like, yeah, I had a daughter once and she died and blah, 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 which is fine on its own. In movies that do that, it's fine. But in this movie, they chose to not do that and sort of leave the audience to learn that on their own, which is something I appreciated more about it. Not to hijack your final thoughts, but that's, uh, no, again, no, no. another reason why I like this movie. So anything else to add, Nick? No, no. I, you covered a lot of my thoughts on it in your very well-said synopsis. Uh, okay. So, Drew, what about you? Anything else? Mm, yeah, I'm between that 7.5 and 8 because uh, absolutely fair point. What a great world. What great characters. Um, it was a two-hour chase scene. Yeah, that it didn't that. feel. So, oh, George Miller, the director, came out to say I wanted to make a two-hour car chase. So that was on purpose. Yeah, um, I, I didn't, I didn't love that, but um, mission accomplished. So yeah, eight out of ten, still fantastic film. Um, if you want something that isn't super headspace, super deep thinking, uh, you know, this is something to pop on and and get some adrenaline pumping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I real quick before I wrap this up, I, I kept I forgot some things I wanted to mention. Um, they said they designed the war rig, the main truck that Imperator Furiosa drives, as a sort of Moby Dick like. So you can notice there's scenes a bunch of times where they harpoon it, and that's they they wanted to draw a parallel between like whaling, uh, which I thought was neat, and you can obviously see when this happens and when they harpoon it, and then milk sprays out as if like, you know blood. Uh, when you harpoon a whale. Um, and then the other thing too, I want to talk about director George Miller. Uh, he's an Australian director and he also directed the movie Happy Feet. <laughs> so huh. yeah, have you have ever seen that? Which is Happy Feet right before this movie too. Yeah. His, his follow-up to Happy Feet was this. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and he won, I think an Academy Award for Happy Feet. <laughs> Um, so this movie received a bunch of Academy Award nominations, uh, best picture was, and best director. It won, uh, costume design, production design, uh, makeup, editing, sound mixing. It won a bunch. 
but it was nominated for Best Picture in 2015, so that's nifty. And then the last thing I want to mention is the soundtrack. Uh, the score was cool. The percussion, the guitar. Uh, I like how they integrated the Doof Warrior and this sort of marching rhythm into the score itself. So that's that. I love this movie. I could talk about it for another 30 minutes, but we got uh, other stuff to talk about. Um, so the final movie we watched was Kick-Ass from 2010. Yes. Uh, and Nick, you suggested this one. So why don't you give a brief intro? So to sum it up, this is a very stereotypical superhero plot where the teenager Dave decides he's going to be a real life superhero and unwittingly gets himself caught up in a war between an ex-cop and a mobster. Yeah. All hell breaks loose. Pretty much. Uh, the main character, Dave, or Kick-Ass, he's just like a high school kid. And he just decides one day to just stop being mugged. So, in, in my notes, I have uh, Enter Average Dave, Chronic Masturbator, Dead Mom. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. I mean, that, that's it, boys. That's it. And that's they the first all topics in like 45 seconds. Yeah, exactly. He's like, my mom, one day I was sitting at the table and his mom just falls over. And he's like, yep. <laughs> conversation just dies. <laughs> Keeps eating cereal. Uh, and then. Yeah, and he says like, <laughs> when I when my hormones get in balance, <laughs> Kleenex stocks are gonna go down because I masturbate so much. <laughs> I was like, damn, I, this movie tried to toe the teen comedy a little bit in the beginning, uh, which sort of worked. So you know, nice. Um, I do want to note though, in terms of credits on this film, one of the producers is Brad Pitt. <laughs> really, yeah. amazing. I'm nice. <laughs> um, All right. Go ahead. So the, the other like primary characters in this movie are of course um, Big Daddy and Hit Girl. Uh, Nick, what are your thoughts on Big Daddy and Hit Girl? What are your thoughts on their relationship? I just like saying Big Daddy. <laughs> Big Daddy. <laughs> Big Daddy is the Batman we deserve. Yeah, hey, Nick. Can you say Big Daddy for me one more time? Big Daddy. Thank you. Please continue. <laughs> I like how their costume design, they have a, their belt says BG and HG. So, or BD for Big Daddy and then HG for Hit Girl on their belts. Yeah, their relationship though is beyond messed up. Like he basically brainwashes this poor girl into being a superhero. Yes. Yeah, so Big Daddy is played by Nicolas Cage and we're going to talk about him, but uh, Chloe Grace Moretz plays uh, Hit Girl and then um, I mean, those are the two coolest characters, but the, I think, uh, Dave or Kickass himself, I, I just thought it was in, weird how he, what his motivations were in the beginning. He was basically just like, I'm bored. I don't do anything in life. I read comics. So maybe I should do that too. Like that's, that's it. And then he puts on, he buys a scuba suit and Timberlands <laughs> and, Decides to go fight crime. Based on New York City, Timberlands are life for a lot of people out there. Yeah, true. I, I disagree with those motivations. I think he, you know, he he says in this monologue pretty much like everyone wants to be a superhero at one point. Everyone wants to be something special. As you said, he's got nothing going on. He's not. Yes, he's a nerd and a dork, but like his grades are nothing to like write home about. Like so, th this is he. He wants. He hungers for more. 
And I think that's the motivation is that he sees that there is a need uh, of someone fighting crime and providing hope. And really that's what he does. Uh, and so he sees that need and he feels that he can, can fill that niche. Well, didn't he even say like he's never felt more alive essentially than when he's getting beat up like, mm-hmm. like that? So I feel that. Um, of course, we have Ted Mosby's daughter uh, playing um, Katie Doma. Uh, Lindsay Fonseca is the actress's name, but in How I Met Your Mother, it's Ted Mosby's daughter. Um, I didn't pick up on that. Oh, you're really? absolutely right. I completely yeah. missed that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I so another like twenty times, so I, I knew that right away. But um, yeah, Katie Doma, I like how she embraced the nerd culture. She's like, well, first off, they only become friends because she thinks that Dave is gay, and so she wants a gay best friend. And he and then, doesn't tell her he's not. Yeah, he's like, it was a weird move, but his move was, I'll let her think she, I'm gay, and then. Maybe I'll sleep with her later. Like that's kind of okay. Okay, so like, when did this movie come out? Two thousand ten. Twenty ten. All right. So it, this it does feel really dated at points because, yeah. like, a I, I think that the gay joke because um, it, it it's played off as a joke. Ha um, ha! You know she thinks Dave is gay. I uh, that I mean twenty ten. That 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 was a joke appropriate at the time, but I don't think is appropriate in the year of our Lord 2020. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of flip phones and MySpace messaging going yeah, on. I wanted to say, I, want, I highlighted MySpace. <laughs> like, this movie doesn't age because of MySpace. Yeah, he uses MySpace to advertise Kickass and answers requests for Kickass to come do things on email. Yeah. Did you, did you pick up, so um, Katie Duma, she says, like, she says, maybe Kickass will help me out and sends a message to him and I guess it like she she wants Kickass to go tell a guy that she previously dated. I guess to stop seeing her, and the dude like beat her up. <laughs> it was a throwaway line, but Kickass was like, "Yeah, he gave her black eyes and stole her money." I'm like, what the fuck? Go to the cops! Like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, walks into what? a crack. He just walks into a crack den and decides to you know raise hell. <laughs> yeah, but but Hit Girl murders the man. <laughs> yeah. Which I do want to talk about that scene because like the song that they play is um yeah, yes. Splits theme. Yes. Um which but like a punk rock cover of it. The music in this movie is awesome because like the there's this counterpoint between this ultra violence of Hit Girl killing men, murder, um, with this children's theme song in the background. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I wrote that down. That was one of my notes too. Like, what is this? In a good way. Like, what is happening? <laughs> um, okay, so I do want to talk about Big Daddy and Nick Cage. So where would you rank this or, or where would you put this as a iconic Nick Cage performance? Drugo. Um, Man, this is... He acts really well in this. Um, In our little group chat, I'm going to steal Nick's line is like, I wanted to shit on Nick Cage, but he does so well in this film. He really sells the character. He really gives him uh, both sociopathy and emotional depth. Um, this is, this is like wicker man level. This is like vampires kiss level. No, no, no. Uh, man, it's just, 
he he acts the hell out of it and makes you a fan of Big Daddy. Mm. Nick, what do you, what was your thoughts on on Nick Cage in this movie? This by far, I went into this wanting to just shit on him. I really did. When I picked this movie, I'm like, we need a Nick Cage movie. We need something that I can just slay and destroy. This is my damn favorite Nick Cage role. Watching this. I have not seen this movie in probably about five or six years. And I literally had no recollection of how good he was in this until I saw it again. So are we looking at this as like a good acting performance or a good Nick Cage performance? And there is a difference. Uh, and I could dedicate six pod episodes to that. But is this a good acting role or a good Nick Cage role? I'm going to put this as a good acting role for him. I, I, I agree. I think Nick grabbed a script and then made it his thing. And he also I, I, put a little touch of Christopher Walken in it, too. Yeah. It's like the things I hyper analyzed his role here because I love Nick Cage. I love every movie he's ever done. And he his accent was all over the place. And <laughs> when he's when he's Big Daddy, he delivers every word in such a stupid way. He enunciates and over enunciates like crazy. He's like he enunciates every other word, and that is how he talks as Big Daddy. It I have is, a theory on that. It's so fucking funny. Yeah, go. It's a play at Adam West. All right, go okay. for it. It's not shy in this movie that Big Daddy is one Batman reference rolled into one. He's the anti-Batman, even though he looks like him. He kills, yeah. he uses foul language, but he still is grammatically correct like Adam West. <laughs> I I know what I again another connection I didn't see but I you've sold me you sold me I agree like look at the cartoony utility belt yeah they make reference to a big daddy signal which they make a joke is cock and balls <laughs> yeah and there's scenes where Dave opens his locker when he's talking to um I want to say her name is Katie but I know I'm messing it up because I'm bad with names and if you actually look closely at the locker door, high school kids decorate their lockers. It's Batman stickers inside his locker. <laughs> this isn't the only Batman reference. That is oh, there's the lots. But I, Nick, I, I agree. I, I'd actually thought that his accent was a play on the Dark Knight gravelly, like, where is she? Kind of super accent they did uh, for the Christopher Nolan trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you could, you could also make the argument for Adam West, too, which is perfect. So... Yeah, I like it. When when BD is getting dressed up, like so uh Nick Cage has like a little thin blonde mustache. And then when he's getting dressed as Big Daddy, he adds extensions to the mustache. Yeah. <laughs> like it it's so brilliant and ridiculous. It's so good. Um so uh, one thing I really like about this film is that there is this like great tone shift. Where you're right in the beginning, it's like, oh, this like teen comedy is gonna be silly. Oh, you know, Dave is a loser and he's gonna end up with the girl. Um, you know, Nick mentioned like the real bad guys or these like gangsters, and uh, BD and Kickass get you know kidnapped and publicly tortured. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On live stream and like on television, and it's not easy to watch. Um. And and I think that was a great tone shift to being like, ha ha ha, how cool would it be to be a superhero? And 
like that that scene that scene really shows like this there's some real consequences here i i want to highlight that scene uh kickass is narrating it and at one point he says i know what you're thinking how can you be how can you know i lived through this if i'm narrating stop being a smart ass (laughs) (laughs) yeah he breaks the fourth wall and says don't be a smart ass Uh, I want to touch on one thing. Big Daddy and Hit Girl's relationship and how he trains her. There's a scene where they're in an aqueduct and he shoots her. That's the yeah. opening scene with them. That's their that's their introduction. That's how you introduce them is, is he shoots her in the chest. Well, go get ice cream. I'm going to shoot you two more times. Yeah. <laughs> and then what ice cream, she's, he says, what do you want for your birthday? And I, I forget what she says. But it's Alice on that. Oh, no, yeah. She, ponies uh, and uh, a dog. Yeah, it's like I, I want a puppy, and he's like devastated. And she was just kidding. I want a butterfly. Daddy, <laughs> I'm just fucking with you, Big Daddy. Yeah, um, I like how Nick Cage delivers every time he says "Oh, child." He's like, "Oh, child," <laughs> and he shoots her. He's like, "Oh, child." Uh, it was so funny. Um, let's see, uh, Big Daddy's death scene too, when he's just screaming while on fire. Oh, uh, I wrote that on my notes. Yes. And then That's the most epic death scene I've seen. What does he say? What is he telling her to do when he's yelling on giving fire? her code words about how to respond to the situation? Yes, yes. But he's like, so, oh, Robin's oh child, like he, he does say uh, Robin's revenge, which yes. is uh, he like she throws like the um, strobe light and then sneaks up behind them, which is a wonderful uh, Robin reference uh, for the standalone Robin title in New Fifty Two. Um, Tim Drake has to like uh, fight a blind master and so he uses like a whistle uh, to kind of distract the blind master uh, and then finally gets to like strike him and I'm like oh man that is like a legit comic book reference good job Hmm. nice so he yells kryptonite keeping it in the DC theme Nice. I didn't. I, I, the Kryptonite, obviously, I knew, but I didn't realize the Robin's Revenge was specific to uh, the comics. So, cool. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually, there used to be a theme park ride at Six Flags called Robin's Revenge. Mm. Oh, nice. Ooh. Ooh. Nice. I will say, how does Hit Girl do all that shit with her 11 year old girl muscles? Like, she's still a girl, like a tiny. 10-year-old girl. I'm going to argue like, that's a director's choice because there was... I read a bunch of stuff on this movie as I was choosing it, and they chose to keep her 11 years old to intentionally not sexualize her. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, there's that line of things an 11-year-old can do, and let's try to keep it somewhat in line. And to, yeah, yeah, okay. So, um, let's see. Uh, I have a bunch of notes about the movie itself that I want to run through. I thought it was funny that kick-ass when he goes on patrol for the first time, he grabs a cat, uh, like missing cat poster. Do you guys remember the name of the cat? Oh, I haven't written down. What was it? Mr. Bitey. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> and he asks everyone, have you seen this cat? Have you seen this cat? Oh, fuck you, Mr. Bitey. When he finds the cat, uh, I miss the old YouTube. <laughs> There's a scene where they're showing like, kick-ass when he gets into a fight it's uploaded to youtube and becomes an internet phenomenon and i'm just like "Eh, i miss old youtube you know but so uh when katie and david are sort of 
when she still thinks he's like a gay guy and they're becoming like friends and stuff, uh, David sort of like introduces her to comics and nerd culture. Drew, do you know which comic she says uh, she likes? She says she lists off two comics that she likes. Uh, do, you, do you know which one? There's specifically oh, one. Yeah, you know I mean, I uh, please tell me. Scott Pilgrim. Yes. And then uh, I think it was like Shoujo Beat or something like that. And like one was an anime. Also, like Slice of Life. Yeah. Um, uh, Scott Pilgrim was the one I wrote down. Which, all right, I'm going to like sidetrack you a little bit. Uh, so the guy who wrote the kick-ass comic, uh, Mark Miller, uh, I've only ever read two Mark Miller books. One of them is uh, Superman Red Sun, which, oh. uh, fucking brilliant. Um, but the other one was like, a relatively unknown title that I really, really enjoyed. And I kind of want to plug for people called American Jesus. Mm. Um, and so the same guy who wrote kick-ass, he wrote this book about an American reality TV show company, pretty much, uh, buys the shroud of Torin, the shroud of Torin, uh, and uses the blood on it to clone Jesus. And they record the life, of this American Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, so, yeah, just wanted to say, like, hey, Mark, all his comic books are a, a little edgy and a little out there, and it, it, that's part of the fun. Yeah. Part of the comic culture in this, I also touched, I wanted to touch on it yet. I read that this movie and the comic book's original run were written at the same time. Oh, really? Uh, yes. So they were able to kind of like play off each other the entire time. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It was like 2008 was when the comic came out and then the movie started, I mean, it was released in 2010. So that timeline matches up. Interesting. Now, what did you guys think of the bad guys, the villains? So Mark Strong and then Christopher Mintz-Plassey as Red Mist. So the entire time uh nick can you repeat that i the whole time i looked at red mist and i went you're mclovin the entire oh, yeah. time yeah i mean he was in this movie because you know mclovin was popular but um i liked i liked mark strong as frank d'amico uh great villain i thought he was a really cool cool villain uh and I, chris d'amico i think is one of those characters that like is obviously he's looking for friendship. He's been protected and guarded. There's a scene where he goes into the comic book shop and Dave tries to say hi to him and the bodyguard steps in and is like, uh-uh. Uh, so, you know, you can sort of sympathize with Chris as like just wanting his father's approval, wanting friends his own age. And so that makes him a sort of a uh, an interesting character. But then, you know, in the end, he says, wait till they get a load of me and fires a gun. So, you know, he becomes a bad guy. But, um, yeah, what'd you, Drew, what'd you think of Chris D'Amico? What a good villain, because you're right. Like, he only really wants friends, he wants peer approval, and he wants his father's approval. Like, and he wants to look good in his father's eyes, because he's like, the entire, his introduction is like him trying to be involved in dad's business, which, I mean, is selling Coke. But, like... So yeah, there, there's some sympathy here, but and you there's a scene where you, like it goes haywire, where um, he co- like Red Mist, uh, Chris convinces uh, Dave to reveal 
where uh, Big Daddy and Hickerl are. Mm -hmm. And that's when the thugs come in and kidnap them. And he's like, no, 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 not Dave. Dave's my friend, you know. But the, the thugs don't care. Like, they they know why they're there. Then he feels used. And again, it, it's almost very sympathetic for this guy. Yeah. And he also saves Dave at one point in the movie. Yeah. Oh, he kicks him through the burning building. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can see he's almost like anti-hero turned villain, almost. Or what... Like he's a interesting foil to Dave, uh, too. So, you know, nice. Um, I want to highlight the deaths in this movie. The death scenes were creative and cool. They throw one guy into a giant microwave and then he blows up. <laughs> and they put one guy. Into he blows a... up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They put one guy into a car and then crush the car. Uh, which was interesting. Um, and then the final Nick death... Cage. Go ahead. There's Sorry. another movie where that happens in a Nick Cage movie. Ooh. That happens at the end of Gone in 60 Seconds. They try to crush a car with Nick Cage's brother in it. In that movie. So, that so Nick Cage has now got two movies in which he operates a car crusher and killing somebody. So that's cool. Um, the end... Uh, the. <laughs> Dave Kickass delivers the pick on someone your own size, and then shoots Mark Strong with a rocket launcher, and then yeah, blows up over Manhattan. <laughs> oh, hilarious! Um, so I don't want to dwell on it too long because I don't want to drag us too far out. But I, I wrote one question down that I want to propose to both of you. Um. So, like, in comic book movies and, like, I'm going to say, like, more simple plots, you have good guys versus bad guys. Um, is Big Daddy and Hit Girl good guys? I would say Hit Girl is a good guy, but only because even though she does bad things, it's not like she set out to do those bad things. Big Daddy is the one that forced her to do it. Big Daddy is definitely more of the anti-hero, like, his motivations might be initially correct, but his uh, his methods are, are aren't aren't good. Like his, there's blood on his hands, and he chose that blood, whereas Hit Girl didn't. So that's my opinion. Am I wrong that they get the money uh, by selling drugs? Do they? They take Nico's money. Okay, which was still drug money. Yes, but like the whole play on Big Daddy's plotline is. He ended up in jail because of Frank D'Amico. He was a cop. Yeah. yeah. And then he got framed, and then his plot was to get revenge on Frank D'Amico once his wife committed suicide. Yeah. And so, it's all revealed in a, a very good... D'Amico. What was that? Big Daddy's whole purpose in his movie is to kill Frank D'Amico, is what yeah. like the whole, mm. the whole time. You're right. Is that maybe not as a good guy, bad guy thing? He has a revenge plot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just wraps Mindy up in it. Yeah, good question. Uh, what do you think? True. I mean, um, I, I think in another circumstance, if the film was framed in another way, he would be the bad guy. He yeah. uh, brainwashes a young girl to murder people. Uh, again, uses drug money to uh, have a, a huge arsenal. Um, yeah, for, forget the the kill count is astronomical. So I think if this movie was framed another way, uh, Big Daddy would be the bad guy. Uh, so which is another thing about the film. It's like 
you know, we're trying to translate comic books to real life. There are no good guys or bad guys in this life. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, nice. I agree. Um, I have a couple quick hits too to go over. Um, just, I, my guy, he recovers from a stab in the gut real fast. So kick ass his very first thing. He, he like tries to fight the muggers who mugged him earlier in the movie and they stab him in the stomach, and then he's like get hit by a car <laughs> almost immediately. And then, like the next scene, he's like, "I'm recovered," and then doing crunches. And I'm thinking, man, that wouldn't that would be like months. Like he recovers real fast. Hey, Arresto, in this movie, because there are scenes like during the Big Daddy death scene where his mouth is just filled with blood, and then ten seconds later, his teeth are pearlescent white. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, like, what's Dave's superpower in this movie? He what? has a bunch of metal plates in him after the, he gets hit by the car. And, and he has peripheral nerve damage. Like, he can't yeah. feel pain normally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess that's true, but it was just like, wouldn't the sutures open up if you're doing crunches when after having been stabbed in the stomach? Like, I mean, obviously, I, I enjoy this movie. It didn't throw it out, but I was like, what? <laughs> okay, he recovers real fast from that. Um yeah, his combat style is basically just flailing around with his his nightsticks, his batons, and I even wrote Dave does a lot of damaging the enemy's fists with his face. <laughs> so, yeah, there's no like, there's no training montage for Dave in this entire movie. Yeah, every time he has a little training montage, it's him dancing in front of his bedroom mirror with the nunchucks. So yes, yeah. There's the one scene where he tries to jump across a building and it was like, whoa, what am I, crazy? And <laughs> that's that. Uh, let's see. when. So Dave uh, decides to reveal to Katie that he is, in fact, kick-ass and also not gay. And she goes a 180 on him real fast and they start fucking like rabbits. <laughs> like She goes from, you're my gay best friend, to let's bang right now. And it happens a lot. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Constant running gag for a good five minutes. Yeah. They're like hanging out with their friends and they're like, if I knew Kick-Ass, I'd fuck the shit out of him. And he's like, all right, let's go see a movie. And then they go in the back and have sex. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, my favorite line in this whole movie is at the very end uh, when Hit Girl has taken out a bunch of the henchmen. One of the henchmen looks into it, sees this guy get knifed to death. And goes, fuck this. I'm getting a bazooka. <laughs> so that, that bodyguard, when they raided, uh, they went to go kidnap Hick, uh, Big Daddy and Kick-Ass, that's the same bodyguard that pulled it off the wall. Out of all oh, yeah. the crazy weapons in the armory, he pulls the bazooka off the wall. Yep. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah exactly. That was so funny. And the fact uh, that they ordered a Gatling gun online, and Nick Jokes makes an add to cart joke. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about that. The jetpack. <laughs> the fucking jetpack Gatling gun thing. $3,000. What do you want? Oh, okay. Oh, what a good reveal. And, like, when Kick-Ass, like, gets the um, Gatling gun slash jetpack combo, he starts killing people yeah. with a little remorse. This is his first time doing these things, and he just kills people. That, that was yeah, a note I had, too. Hands her the manual and goes, yeah, you got about a half hour to figure out how to use it. Kick-Ass never touched a gun in the movie before this. Yeah. I, I had that as a note as well. <laughs> and he's like, man, he just starts killing people, huh? 
Um, so, and then, <laughs> and then my last note I had was that uh, he, do they, after they kill Frank D'Amico and stuff, do they just fucking jetpack across the East River to Brooklyn? <laughs> Yep, yep, they go right back to Brooklyn where they were living, back toward where Big Daddy's hideout was. Like, dude, he's just jetpacking around Manhattan over the East River and landing in Brooklyn. Like, does no one care? Like, this is a post. It's New York. You see crazy shit like that every day. Come on, post nine eleven world. Like they, they'd be like shoot him down. It's just interesting. Anyway, I don't think I had anything else really to add. Um, I have, I have one concluding point. So there's this like flip on the famous Spider-Man line with great power comes great responsibility where Dave says with no power comes no responsibility, which I think hits so much harder because there, this movie is from a normal person's perspective. This isn't someone who, you know, is the lost son of Krypton. Um, So normal people, we aren't compelled to do heroic things because we don't have that great power. So therefore there is no responsibility to do great things. But the fact that he does it despite having no power, that's heroism. That's, that's the fucking point that that's what the movie is. Yeah. Yep. Nice. I, I don't think I even noticed that line. So good call. Uh, do what would you give this out of 10? And do you have any, anything else to add? Um, I, I enjoyed this. Um, it's a shame because we, I think we had three real heavy hitters in this movie, even though you didn't enjoy Shin Godzilla. I mean, three heavy hitters in uh, this podcast. Um, so I, I feel like we're all rating things super high, but considering the last time I was on with Terrain, uh, everything kind of sucked with the exception of one, uh, you know. So so this this I would give a seven because it's, it's enjoyable, and but there, it, you can't expect too much of it from yeah. it. Yeah. Nice. All right, uh, Nick, what about you? Any any final concluding thoughts? And what would you give it out of 10? I have one main thought here throughout this whole movie. Okay. Even though the movie is called Kick-Ass, I feel that he is the B-plot throughout this whole movie. All right. What's I the A-plot? Big Daddy and Hit Girl, the whole movie. Hmm. There's more backstory on them than Dave. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely more complex characters. Like, Dave... I mean, he gets a montage about how he jerks off too much and then has a dead mom, and that's that's that. Okay. Whereas, like Hit Girl and Big Daddy, like they, they throw it, they show it through a comic book montage of Big Daddy being framed and his wife committing suicide, and like their, their motivations, I think, are more defined than Dave's. So yeah, I agree. I would give this. I'm going to give this movie a seven, but due to one factor only: Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Understandable. This movie will be a five for me. All right. Uh, I'm groundwork for future R-rated superhero movies like Deadpool because this wasn't a thing before. That's true. That that is something that I thought and I forgot to mention earlier is that I you're right. This is an R-rated superhero movie that this hasn't happened before. Like what was before this was like what Blade? Like was that even? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, I want to give it, I, I'm going to follow suit with you guys, actually. Uh, seven out of 10. Uh, I brought it as entertaining. Um, ages a little bit because, you know, MySpace and gay jokes. Uh, so uh, I think it's ages a little bit. Um, Nick Cage is hilarious. I would not 
give this a good Nick Cage performance, but I agree it's a good performance. Um, I think my main complaint actually is the length. Uh, I really felt the length of this movie. It's two hours long, and it, that's, it was rough uh, lengthwise. I think they could have trimmed some, some of it out. Um, so 7 out of 10. And I don't want to keep, keep on this too much, but have either of you guys seen the second one? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I saw the second one as well, and I thought it was okay. Now, um, I, again, I don't want to drag on it too much, but in the second one, they definitely sexualize Hit Girl a lot more. Oh, so, yes. Um, I'm glad you brought up that they intentionally did not sexualize her in this movie. So I appreciate that There's a lot. There's one where they do, though. Uh, During the, the kick-ass, uh, the, the, the Big Daddy death scene, the, the two friends are watching it on the computer, and the one kid goes, she's like 11, and the other guy goes, I will save myself for her. That's right. That's right. You're right. Uh, and that was weird. And that was weird. Creepy. So, and that guy doesn't get a girl in the end. So, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, solid. Yeah. So, I appreciate you guys coming on and picking these movies. It was great, great way to spend this week uh, as well because I've been busy uh, moving and stuff. So this is a nice way to spend some time and de- decompress a bit. Uh, I think we had three good movies on here. Um, so nice. Now, usually I end this with, uh, you know, what have you been watching? What's going on? So, Nick, uh, is there anything on TV, any movies, anything you've been doing lately to pass the time? Uh, I'm still working a crazy 60 to 80 hour week schedule on any Mm. given week. So when I get 30 minutes, I'm watching Future Man on Hulu, which is a great pop culture take or Ballers on HBO. Nice. Nice. Solid. Both good choices. Uh, Drew, what about you? Um, I, I do want to echo your point. I do love being on this pod because life is hectic, like it's crazy, but I have to sit down and schedule two hours to watch a movie and write notes. This podcast forces me to be on my ass and enjoy myself, and I am so grateful for you for allowing me to that opportunity. Um, it, I have been watching Queer Eye on Netflix because it is from my home and native land of the 215, the Philadelphia greater region. So it is so good to hear people with that beautiful Philadelphian accent and you know, it, it, it's home. It's home. Yeah. Oh, oh, I agree. I've been watching queer eye myself as well. I've also got into umbrella Academy on Netflix. That's a interesting and fun comic book TV show. That's not widely known, similar to kick-ass actually. Um, so it's nice. And just to, to final, I, I started this podcast because I was bored during quarantine and wanted something to do and to add some structure. So you know, that's why I did it. So if you, anybody else, listeners, want to come on, uh, hit me up. Uh, but, you know, thank you guys both for coming on. I appreciate you guys both so much. Uh, and I will, uh, you know, sign off here. So goodbye to my three listeners. And thank you guys for listening. Love Bye. you guys. Bye. Bye.